Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth. Brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. Our guest today is David Berry, the founder and CEO of Velo Health, a data-driven pharma startup hoping to fundamentally alter the drug discovery and development process. Barry, a serial entrepreneur who has founded more than 30 companies, five of which are publicly traded, believes the industry's longtime approach to generating new drugs is too costly, slow, and ineffective to keep pace in the battle against disease. Velo is one of scores of AI and machine learning startups emerging lately that aim to use human data sets to reinvent the process. But Barry feels his company's distinctive approach gives it an advantage. Instead of targeting just a single therapeutic and disease category at a time, Velo relies on its Opal computational platform to simultaneously pursue potential treatments for multiple conditions in an integrated fashion. Velo's wealth of longitudinal high-density data is another asset, according to Barry. Assets, of course, are critical in such an expensive undertaking, and Velo has raised close to half a billion dollars in funding since its founding in 2019. Welcome to the podcast, David. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about a strategy that looks at different therapeutic areas and tries to do development at scale across them simultaneously versus focusing on a niche. How does this approach influence your decision-making and your risk profile? And the way we think about Velo Health is that we want to transform the way we think about discovering and developing drugs to treat disease. Now, in the history of drug discovery and development, there's been about 1,500 drugs that have been approved. There's about 13,000 known diseases of those drugs. Many of them go after the same disease. So when we think about our journey up the mountain of trying to transform our relationship with disease, in a way, we're just getting started. Our view is we want to fundamentally and foundationally change that landscape. A big way that we think about drugs, a big way that we think about disease has been governed by the journey that medicine has taken over years, which is understanding the technical nature of disease. But it's been guided by this orientation of biology that's pervaded since the beginning. That is, we tend to think about a cardiovascular system. We tend to think about a pulmonary system. We tend to think about a musculoskeletal system, and we tend to break them apart. The reality is they all work together to make a human. When you look at the complexity of diseases, it's often not so convenient that it breaks up into these systems that we've defined over time. So as we think about it, with our aspiration of being able to transform disease, we need to embrace the complexity of data. From our perspective, we're dovetailing two different components on this. One, we've picked therapeutic areas where we think we can have a very particular emphasis and impact, but two, we're designing our capabilities so that ultimately we can have an impact across all of them. And that is, we are leaning in heavily in the beginning to cardiovascular. The reason we do that is because there's so much quantitative data that exists. There's a history of quantitative data, but there's also a foundation of drug trials taking a really long time, costing a lot, 
and frankly, having a low probability of success. We see that as an opportunity to harness the data that exists, coupled with a challenging area where we can demonstrate the power of our Opal computational platform to have impact. But while we think we can have real impact on the disease area that still is the number one killer, we do think that there's an opportunity to go well beyond that to think about how we can transform medicine. You threw out those stark numbers of drugs that have been approved and 13,000 known diseases. Those numbers make you think, is the current process going fast enough or uh, successful enough? And the answer might be no. Does that change the risk profile, um, to go back to that earlier question, um, or your decision-making in how you approach the process? Well, absolutely. I think it changes it perhaps in a counterintuitive way. And what I mean by that is when you look at a typical, say, biotech company, a biotech company often has one, maybe two drugs. And effectively, the outcome that anyone's necessarily looking at, an investor, an employee, et cetera, it's binary. Because if a company has a clinical trial that fails at the wrong time in the development, that company might very well go under. That's a very scary proposition. Our aspiration is not just a single drug. It's a systematic change in the way that drugs are discovered and developed, the way that we can use data and computation. It's caused us to focus from day one on where our platform can be advanced the most by developing drugs, but also where we can have the biggest impact on developing drugs. That allows us to think about that sweet spot for our platform in the context of therapeutic development, which guides our decision-making to make sure we're doing what's best for the patient, what's best for the therapeutic, what's best for our platform, but recognizing that we're building a platform to support the development of tens, ideally hundreds more drugs over time. How does data act as this transformation agent? Can you give us a view of how this approach works and promises to make the discovery and development process faster, less costly, and more successful? Sure. When you look at the drug discovery and development process that's evolved, we've gotten to a process where many people have been working with best intent and best capabilities over decades to try to deliver life-changing therapeutics to patients. I don't fault how we got here, but when you look at its core, the way that which a drug is trying to influence, hit, manipulate, um, modulate. Those are often discovered by looking at a cell that's been taken from a human, put into culture, and adapted to plastic. And ultimately, during that process, a lot changes in that cell. Frankly, a single cell is not representative of a person. What you're left with is an imperfect system that gives you insights around which discovery programs start. Then, as you start looking at the advancement of a drug, you work on how to make the drug. And then you start to try to figure out how can we predict whether this thing is going to work in humans. What's now possible is we can use human data to uncover the target. We can understand what that protein looks like in a human. We can create systems that allow us to predict how that molecule will work in a human. And ultimately, when we test in people, in theory, we can have more confidence that it's going to work. So our view is it starts by creating a fully integrated end-to-end -end data system. But it also requires having the right kind of data. And from that standpoint, there's two types of data I like to think about. One is what's often called longitudinal data. 
That's where you can look at the medical life of patients over a significant amount of time. Anyone who's experienced disease personally or through a relative knows that most diseases are not instantaneous. They're progressive, but in some cases it's chronic. Understanding that nuance allows us to understand disease better. No mouse, no cell can give us that level of data. And then at the same time, we look at uh, what I'm going to shorthand as omics. We've often heard about genomics in the past where we're studying the genes of people. But the interesting thing is genes don't change for the most part over the course of your life, but how your disease manifests absolutely does. All of that together, it allows us to create a much more powerful picture of disease and health than you could do 30 years ago. That's the promise that we're sitting in front of today. If you get the right quality data at the right scale, we can fundamentally think about the process differently. And is the key to the process being faster in those early stages? You're skipping some of the older, more standard approaches and making up for it with data and AI. Some of the biggest impacts ultimately will come in the clinical arena, although it's going to take some time to get there. If you can orient everything around human data, you can start by asking the question around human clinical conditions, translate that into a drug, and then go back and ask the initial clinical question. Now, by framing it like that, you have an opportunity to potentially change the way you do studies because you understand the disease that much better. And by understanding the disease that much better, you can potentially see signals earlier that are deeply informative as to what's going to happen in a patient and not have to wait, say, three, four, five years to be able to see an outcome. I, I know people have said you can't make a cake faster by turning it up to 900 degrees. And I agree with that. But you certainly can redesign your systems so that you can put the pieces together quickly, more quickly. You can have operational efficiencies so that you can make 100 cakes in parallel, not just one at a time. And then the net benefit on that is a completely different outcome where your average time is dramatically reduced. You've developed some drugs that are entering phase two clinical trials. Can you give us a brief understanding of one of those? Sure. So we have uh, two therapeutics, one being Opal 401. We're developing that for complications of diabetes, starting with diabetic retinopathy. Um, this is a really important condition. There's some 300 million people around the world who have diabetes, and about a third of them have diabetic retinopathy. And complications of diabetes are the number one cause of blindness. Right now, treatments for diabetic retinopathy are only at the late stage, and they are done by direct injections into the eye. Our therapeutic is an oral, which is something that we think patients would like better. Also, the way we've been looking to develop this is allowing us to potentially intervene earlier. Because if we can get it to a patient when they're moderate rather than severe, then hopefully we can prevent them from going to this course of blindness. We see opportunities not just around diabetic retinopathy, but many more of the complications associated with diabetes as well, where we're hoping to have a big impact. Let's talk briefly about your background um, and what it means for the company. Um, you've served as CEO for many companies. Five of them are now trading publicly. Are there common traits or behaviors you look to bring in or instill in these kinds of companies at the early stages? Obviously, there is no company that is a one-person show. You need 
a really high quality team. You want to find people who can work well together, people who are driven by the mission of the company and have a capability to do the sorts of things that you're trying to do. I like to operate in what one might call white space in these areas that really don't have much, if any, precedent. And that requires groups of people who are willing to step into the unknown, to do the sorts of things that in an ordinary world, one might call it crazy. And for me, when I get called crazy, which you can probably imagine around my house, it might happen every day. You embrace that and view it as a compliment, not something that's uh, a negative. So that's a really important piece. Second, I want people to be very comfortable with being uncomfortable. That is, we're doing something novel. We're going to get data we didn't expect. We're going to see things that can't be anticipated. And we need everyone to lean into that and frankly, to be motivated by that. But what goes with that is we need people to be willing at all levels of the organization to be comfortable to speak their mind. That is, the person who's closest to the data will see something unexpected. If they sit on it, we as a company will make a mistake. So we expect the best out of everyone. We believe in the best of everyone. And we also expect everyone to come forth with their best ideas. By trusting everyone, we can create an environment by which everyone can do that. And then we'll actually act on it and acknowledge the fact that unknowns will happen. But we celebrate that and we can use that as part of our core strength. Right. And are there any lessons that you've learned from your prior experiences that shape your approach today with Valo? The single most important thing is to really have conviction in what you're trying to do. When you go out into the world, whether you're raising money or recruiting or trying to find partnerships or trying to sell, people will tell you constantly how bad your idea is. When people tell you how bad your idea is, I view that as free advice, right? I listen to it. I acknowledge it. And if it's useful to me, I'll think about it. But when people tell me I would invest if only you did this, you don't change. You have to have conviction because what sets an entrepreneur up to do something that's truly irrational, right? To move out of a stable, well-paying job into one where hmm, there isn't a support network. There aren't hundreds of people that help you do your job. You have to have conviction. And if you're going to get pushed and pulled around by everyone you talk to, you're never going to be successful, especially if you're doing things that are really new. Conviction is something that I can't understate. The other thing, follow the data. Because even though you're well-intended, even though you have really well-thought-out ideas, something surprising is always going to come up. I actually think it's in those moments of surprise that companies are made. And talking about following the data, let's talk a little bit about macro data. We all know that there's been quite a shift in market conditions and economic signals over the past six months, especially uh, on the inflation front. To what degree is this impacting the sector? Well, to talk about the uh, market in general, um, the world of 2021 and the world of 2022 are vastly different. When we look back at 2021 and probably earlier, uh, we had a heated, if not overheated market. We saw a lot of companies raise money at very high prices. We saw a lot of companies go public. Um, these were companies that were going public earlier than they had in recent years and potentially earlier than they were fully ready to. The market has started to recognize 
that there was probably an overexpansion. And so what we've seen is a general compression in the biotech arena. On the one hand, you might say, hmm, that's probably warranted because there's some publicly traded companies that are years away from a clinical candidate, which is a currency that has often been viewed as how you get to value in biotech. But at the same time, the market has been a bit indiscriminate because one of the shifts that's occurred over the last couple of years has been a lot more companies that are developing platforms than just single products. That pressure is very well warranted when you're dealing with early stage single products. What a platform is, is an investment in a toolkit that allows for a series of drugs to be made. Often, I think that there's a, a misconception that even these platform companies may come down to one drug. Now, developing these platform companies can be tens of drugs. That's one of the things that gets very exciting about them is when they have that durable potential. We're going to start seeing the separation from the winners and the losers. There are companies that are still continuing to raise capital. There are companies in this market that are continuing to thrive and they're continuing to develop against their vision. This is one of those areas where uh, conviction gets tested and it gets tested heavily because in some of these cases, it may be the life and death of a company. But ultimately, uh, I suspect what we're going to see in the back end of this is a biotech world that's much stronger than where it was a year ago. One of the things that makes success in downturns like this is when companies recognize the reality, they focus in on how they create value, they excise everything that's not that, and with that deep focus, with operational vigor, they can actually make a much better company. And in terms of, of Valo Health in particular, has the shift impacted your journey in any noticeable way? We went through um, a process that one would expect in these sorts of markets. Having seen some of the early signals of downward market pressure, we got our activities deeply focused on how we maximize value and how we drive our business. And I think we were able to uh, change some of our operations in a way to really increase our efficiency. The company has been paying dividends on that because we've been able to move some of our goals forward at the same time while being thoughtful about how we manage uh, things like cash burden. And how have you thought about using partnerships and acquisitions to date? Yeah, so we did buy uh, Terra Biosystems uh, on April 1st this year. We've had an approach from day one of you do what's best to develop your platform. And in some cases, the technologies that already exist in the hands of others are better than what we could build in a reasonable period of time. What Terra built was an absolutely outstanding system for being able to predict um, various elements of safety, particularly around uh, cardiovascular disease, as well as efficacy in the context of cardiovascular disease. It was being used by a lot of uh, tier one companies. It's not the only company we've acquired because in every case, we're thinking about what's better, build or buy. And from our standpoint, it's not a matter of pride to do organic versus inorganic growth. It's a matter of quality. We care a lot about the quality that Terra had to offer. Let's get back to the broader drug discovery space. Certainly, it has been getting crowded, including more biotech companies turning to AI in some way. How do you navigate that environment to differentiate your approach and create a unique value proposition? 
the transition to a human data focus and um, computational tools, including but not limited to AI, I mean, in a way, it's an inevitability for the industry. Because if you just ask simple questions, would you rather use human data to discover targets or mouse data to discover targets to, to make drugs? It's pretty clear you'd like to use human data if you could. I don't think it's freely enterable for everyone to be able to do this because there's limited pools of data. Not all the data is publicly available. The tools and the skill sets to apply AI at the scale and the quality that's needed, I mean, it's not commoditized where we sit today. So I think it's very easy to say the words. I think it's very hard to do well. The way we think about it is we're very focused on doing the highest quality work we can, focusing on the highest quality data sets and making sure we can deliver real results to our partners, to our customers, and that we can deliver the impact that we promise. It's a mistake to think you can hide behind the black box of AI, because from our standpoint, this is something where there are patients on the other end, making sure you're holding yourself accountable to the highest standards, but also recognizing that we're doing this in collaboration with an industry and allowing the industry to understand and work with us is something that's incredibly important. Your broader approach to casting a wider net, is that part of the differentiation or do you see that approach becoming more widespread over the coming years? What we're going to start seeing over the coming years is that um, companies in the drug discovery and development space will focus more on what they're really, really good at. For example, we launched a product earlier this year. It's a product we launched collaboratively with Charles River Labs called Logica. And that's a fully integrated offering where someone doesn't need to coordinate the studies or any of the work that one would ordinarily do preclinically. And we don't know an offering like that. You can look at that kind of offering on a couple of perspectives. You could say it's another tool, but a company that's just starting can ask the question, do I want to build out my chemistry expertise? Or if this is sufficiently high quality, do I just depend on that? Similarly, if you're a larger company, you might say, do I want my resources to be fixed cost on balance sheet or do I want them to be variable cost? It allows companies to say, what is my core competency? And let me focus in on that. We focus in on what our core competency is, which is data, computation, and the outputs thereof. So in essence, you're both developing your own drugs, but you're also offering to be a partner using your own technology um, and solutions uh, with others uh, where you do the work using your platform, but you don't do the final work of marketing or getting the drug approved. Exactly. We don't have a distinctive competency in the commercialization of drugs. Companies like Merck, Pfizer, like Novartis do a great job on that. And from our standpoint, without something that's a distinctive competency there, it behooves us to recognize what we're really good at, as well as what other people are really good at. So for your own drugs, you would eventually partner with somebody for the commercial launch. That's what we expect. And to be honest, that's the reality of the biotech industry. The vast majority of these companies, even though they act like they're going to commercialize on their own, work for 10 years, they get through phase two, and it gets sold. The number of companies that don't do that, we can count on two, three, four hands. It's more the edge case where these small companies ultimately end up commercializing. How do you expect your overall data strategy to evolve in the next two, three, four years? Data is, of course, really important. And as we think about data, we're looking for 
what I would call high quality, high density representative data. By representative, I mean genetically diverse that covers the patients that you're trying to understand and ultimately treat. By having the right data, you can start asking the right questions. Part of the challenge is not all of the right data exists. There's a lot of bias that exists in data sets. My attitude, acknowledge it, accept it, start your work and solve the problem as you go. We're looking at how you expand data, how you make it more representative, how you get higher quality data, but also as we think about it, getting fully integrated data sets. We're looking to work with partners on generating more of that data so that we as an industry can have the best data, the right data to be able to develop meaningful therapeutics. Do you have a sense yet about other therapeutics areas you might move into next over the coming decade? So the therapeutic areas we started focusing on are uh, CVMR, cardiovascular metabolic renal, oncology, and neurodegeneration. But ultimately, we picked those areas because they're very different. And the way that you look at data is different in them because ultimately, we're building our OPA computational platform to try to impact as much of medicine as possible. So by picking disparate regions, we think it helps us develop our platform that much better. We see opportunities where data might give us some new hypotheses, some new targets, some new means of intervention, and ideally some new ways to do clinical studies. And I think that can be very powerful. Where we take it from there, we'll follow the data. It's going to build us a platform that's going to allow us to move into a lot of different therapeutic areas. What are the implications for drugs that are for more rare diseases? I know that's often been a topic of great discussion in the sector. When I think about rare diseases, I think there's a couple sides of the coin. Uh, first, when you think about what the opportunity in rare genetic diseases is, it's actually been one of the first areas where reproducibly, the industry has been able to find human targets from human data with a causal linkage. And that's really powerful. So what does that mean? It means you develop a drug with very high confidence and you can deliver it to the market. For what it's worth, that's no different than what we're trying to do for big diseases, which is we're trying to get that causality. It's just, it hasn't been possible for these big diseases. So I think rare diseases speak to the same mission of what we are trying to do. And there's a lot more to do. I mean, I think the numbers of therapeutics, it's still only in the tens of diseases that have been treated. And I think of the 13,000 diseases, that's about 3,500 of them that are these uh, so-called rare genetic diseases. Do I think that there's an opportunity to use data to more systematically move after them? Yes. Frankly, an opportunity to cut the cost and cut the time of drug development, it helps to make these diseases more accessible to being able to develop interventions. But at the same time, the opportunities on the other end, where if we can make bigger diseases have the benefits that rare genetic disease have conferred, right? High confidence targets, an ability to demonstrate very clearly that your drug is working early on, an ability to test your clinical hypothesis very crisply, that can be transformative to drug development. The approach that you're taking uh, in the process, does it have any impact on um, how your drugs are ultimately considered when it comes to regulatory approvals, or does it not really matter because the key is the clinical trials at the end? This is an open question. Our view is you work very closely with the regulators because we are trying to bring 
new technologies to bear, but we're trying to do it, of course, with the interest of patients in mind. In my experience, the FDA really wants to get good drugs to patients and do it as thoughtfully as possible. So I think they're a very important partner in this process. As they see the power of data and computation, I personally believe that they're going to embrace it in an appropriate manner. A rush to try to replace a randomized controlled trial or RCT uh, with a data simulation, I don't think that's going to happen in the near term. But I think looking at where we can augment clinical trials, my belief is that the FDA will be open to these sorts of evolutions in drug discovery and development, again, for the benefit of patients. And lastly, when you think about the coming decade or so, what are your particular aspirations for scaling the business? What are the biggest challenges to reach those goals? What we'd like to become over time is the technology provider for the drug discovery and development industry. There's a tremendous opportunity with data and computation that is the more data you have, the better data you have, the better you can draw out these computational insights. And at some level, that allows you to scale. What we want to do is create these offerings so we can have as much of an impact as possible. This is an ecosystem, and we want to play a catalytic role in helping the ecosystem be able to deliver that future that I think we all want. That's really where we're looking to go. So we focus our data, our computation, our interactions with partners with that vision in mind. Now, from that perspective, you have to make sure you're rigorous about your data, you have to make sure you're rigorous about your computation, and ultimately, you're delivering insights, actionable outputs that your customers, that your partners can work on and use all in the service of making better drugs for patients faster. David, I want to thank you for taking so much time to chat. Appreciate it, and thank you for the opportunity to be here. That's it for this episode of McKinsey on Startups. Thanks, as always, to our stellar podcast production team, Molly Carlin, Sid Ramtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Nella. And of course, thank you for listening. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.